the tiny house trend, a lot of it is very popular because of our concern with climate change. Because it hasn't been done in Philadelphia before, there does there doesn't exist the zoning infrastructure. You know the policy isn't there, which is both good and bad. The way the reason it's good is because it, you potentially can create something new. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, the program that shines a spotlight on positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization in the city of brotherly love. Coming to you live from the G-Town Radio Studio on Maplewood Mall in Germantown. Here's your host, Alina DeLisser. And welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, The topic is affordable housing and what we can do as a community to address the crisis that's growing everywhere, even here in Philadelphia. So one thing that I've been hearing more and more about lately are tiny homes. And our guest today is Stephanie Senna, an adjunct professor at Villanova University who's going to tell us more about small prefabricated housing and whether these tiny homes could be a viable solution to providing more affordable housing throughout the city. Ultimately, Stephanie would like to build a village of these homes that could help the homeless. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. So, Stephanie, in 2011, you created the Student-Run Emergency Housing Unit of Philadelphia. That's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. A nonprofit homeless shelter which offers college students the opportunity to provide shelter, food, and community to individuals experiencing homelessness in Philadelphia. And as the executive director of this organization, you've been responsible for overseeing over 300 student volunteers. And today the organization has grown to multiple chapters at Philadelphia area universities, including Villanova, Penn, and Drexel, just to name a few. So through your work helping the homeless, you've really come to realize that providing shelter, while hugely important, is sort of a Band-Aid that's covering up the issue and that the end goal should really, and the long-term goal, should really be getting people out of shelters and into better lives. So can you talk more about your journey in this, in this sphere and give us a little bit more context about your organization and what inspired you to start it? Okay, absolutely. So I have been teaching at Villanova since 2003. I started when I was 10 years old. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I, was, I was a little baby. Um, I did my first master's at Villanova uh, and then went on for a post, another postgraduate degree after that. But I started teaching at Villanova and I was teaching um, general education requirement history. So history, but to any student at the university. And I was teaching about global poverty and the history of global poverty. And I was recognizing that I had a lot of students who were business majors, many of them. Villanova is a very expensive university. And I had um, a lot of students whose parents were CEOs of major corporations and who were going to graduate and go on to take over their parents' work or start their own enterprise. And... um, 
And many of them also, a majority of my students went to suburban, private, mostly Catholic high schools. And here they were at a suburban, private, Catholic university and hadn't been exposed to poverty really at all, many of them. So here I am talking about global poverty, which affects so many people in the world today. And it's a reality that's so divorced for them from them. Uh, so I would, I would be in a, a building called Bartley, which is like lined with marble. You can walk outside the classroom and there's, um, screens with the, you know, ticker tape, like, uh, students could go outside and watch what their stocks were doing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I could talk in my classroom until I was blue about people are suffering, people are struggling. There's billions of people in the world today who are affected by poverty, um, and, uh, and, and living off of less than $2 a day, the, the average, um, person born in the world today. And yet they'd look outside their classroom and see the manicured lawns, you know, which millions of dollars were going into. Um, and, you know, it just, I, I felt that, uh, I'm a big advocate of teaching outside the classroom and I, and I really feel like our world is so, um, we're so divided today in so many ways. Uh, certainly politically, we know that. Right. right. But even um, spatially, uh, we're not even in, in the space with each other, really. Um, and so this was bothering me. But at the same time, I realized my Villanova students, like many youth um, throughout the world, regardless of where they are attending school, are compassionate people with, with brilliance and, and ability and, and they care. They just really don't know where to channel that. Right, right. They need a guide. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So um, I, after one particularly difficult semester, I started thinking I wanted to channel their, their, their energy and their compassion and their brilliance towards um, fixing this problem of, of poverty. Um, and Villanova uh, is very good with, at sending students on mission trips during fall and spring. Out of the country, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, yep. So students are going to Guatemala or El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras. And uh, they'll build a library or something, which is, you know, important work, but, but, but uh, they, they are not creating community, right? They drop in and then they, they come back. They're there for a week. And it doesn't, uh, in my mind, doesn't give them the ability to build sustainable connections and help them evaluate, well, why are these people struggling? And also, what are my choices doing to, you know, what impact are my choices having on those people in faraway countries? Um, there's, there's still kind of a division to me. It, mm-hmm. It's an us and them. And right, it, right. there's this narrative about a group of people who can do the helping and a group of people who need to be helped. And it's very um, white savior complex. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was uncomfortable with this. Uh, and I also thought, you know, we don't need to travel to Guatemala, you know, and then change our profile, Facebook profile picture page to, you know, carrying a little child in your hand. Like, you can go into your backyard right, and help people who are your neighbors and build sustainable relationships, which will compel us to ask them what they see for their future. Not go in and say, this is what we see for you. This is what we can do for you. But, but um, ask them what they want. Right. 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 So true solidarity. Um, so I was thinking about that. At the same time, I heard on NPR in a program called Here and Now, um, which was broadcast out of Boston, uh, a, a show about 
Boston students from Cambridge and Harvard who were running a homeless shelter in Boston. And I was inspired and thought, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe we could get our Villanova students to participate in something like that in Philadelphia. At the same time, there was a major shelter in Philadelphia that was closing. It was called Ridge Shelter, which housed 300, over 300 people. And um, what and there was no there were no new beds opening up in Philadelphia. So what that meant was there would be more people who were on the streets if the, if these beds came offline if they were closed. The reason they were closed. So if I if you don't mind, like sure sure for any of your audience members who are into like policy poli- policy geeks or, or history buffs or whatever, I'm going to give you a little context into what was happening in Philadelphia and throughout the world. So uh, so we're talking about. This was 2011 was when I started formulating this idea of, of running a shelter in Philadelphia. But for many years, the, the local, state, and federal solution to homelessness was shelter, right? Uh, institutionalization, in essence. And um, the, these shelters were not great places. But basically, if, if the government had a, a certain amount of money to spend on, on you know, on helping this problem, they would put it towards the shelters. And so in the early, two, like 2001, there was a report that came out from Penn, from Dennis Colhane. And the report came out that said it is, uh, what he did is he studied people who went into the shelters, who were homeless, who stayed on the streets, and compared them to people who were given housing and tracked them over time. And he said it is significantly less expensive to give a person a house than to put them in the shelter system or let them die on the streets. Um, and I think he was specifically dealing with looking at a population of single men who were uh, maybe addicted. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but nonetheless, a population of people who were highly vulnerable uh, or chronically homeless. And um, what he said is, you know, it is less expensive, not to mention more humane, but certainly less expensive for our tax money and more effective if we house them. Uh, which is true. And so what happened is that it started a shift. This started in around 2008, a shift in where money would go to eradicating the problem of homelessness. And so money that used to go to the shelters was now funneled to this uh, housing first initiative, basically, through housing vouchers um, and housing subsidies. And, um, And that was great, except there were some major flaws. One flaw is that uh, the way that a person who needs housing could get a housing voucher, the only way is through the shelter system. The shelter had to be the, the gateway. First mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, the portal. That's right. So what? P- prior to that, uh, there were people who were living in unsafe housing conditions or couch surfing or, um, or doubling up, which was illegal according to zoning laws. And when this announcement came out, a lot of people started coming out of the places they were that were not sustainable and going into the shelter. So at the same time that the federal government and the state and the local are saying we're going to redirect funds from the shelter to housing initiatives and housing vouchers, it's also saying the gateway is the shelter. So what's happening is that the shelter is becoming like underfunded and and over capacity. And so more and more shelters are closing as a result because they don't have the funding and the capacity to stay open. So uh, 
that net, that now enter us. So that's that's the world we come into in 2011. Is that ridge closed because from 2008 to 2011 the funding started to deteriorate? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Of how course. that's all happening? Yeah. No. Thank you for that background. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then. Um, so then in 2011, uh, I went to vi- my Villanova students after I'd heard this report on NPR and got inspired about this, these Boston students running a shelter. And I went to my Villanova students and I said, uh, let's run a shelter modeled after this one in Boston. And I'm a researcher. I'm a historian by, by trade. And, and so I need to know exactly what I'm doing before I do anything. So I said, first, what we, if, we, if, we think, if we're going to think about it, we got to go to Boston and check it out and see what it's like there. So over f- spring break, I took 20 of my students to Boston, and we stayed in that shelter run by the Harvard and Cambridge students for about a week. Wow. And we, um, you know, really f- got to see what it takes. And then afterwards, I met them in a coffee shop in Boston, and I said, um, okay, we've been here for a week. We've seen how it runs. Do we want to do this in Philly? Um, and my students were incredibly uh, enthusiastic, which I knew they would be. And, um, and so we came back to Philadelphia and, uh, hit the ground running. Um, we needed to get a nonprofit status and funding and lawyers who we had with Pepper Hamilton. They're an amazing law firm that still represents us today. Uh, we got partnerships. Our first partner was Sister Mary Scullion with Project Home, who was a blessing to us. Um, and just did a ton of research. And uh, before our doors opened, so, so in terms of the timeline, uh, I heard the report on NPR in December of 2010. A few weeks later, which is now January of 2011, I go to Villanova and present the idea to my Villanova students. Uh, in March of 2011, um, that same semester, I take my students to Boston. And then um, we officially open our doors on November 1st. So it was less than a year, basically, from start from from idea to opening our doors. Um, and in that time, from from idea to opening our doors, other universities started to hear about what we were doing and wanted to be involved. And so they started to reach out. And quickly, we built chapters at these local universities. Um, some of them you mentioned, like Penn and Drexel and Swarthmore. Um, and then all, and we were operating then in church basements. The first year we operated in three church basements and we would operate, uh, it was originally seasonal from November to April. And we would, uh, most, many shelters are, um, uh, this, the clients are transient for us. They, they're the same clients throughout the year and we work with them to get them services that they need to get into housing. So, um, they often they had case management many times through Project Home or from from you know city shelter, um, and we offered a ton of services that we were able to receive donated from the local universities. Anything from like career services to healthcare um, opportunities, and uh, this was all offered. Meanwhile, what was happening is so it would be open from seven p.m. to seven a.m. every day, so the clients would sleep at the shelter at the church on cots. They could keep their belongings there. And um, my volunteers would always say, what is the most important thing I, could, I can do? And I would say, you know, I would disrupt the idea of a general soup kitchen. And I would say it's not mm. to, um, you know, cook the lasagna or serve the baked ziti or clean up afterwards. It's to sit and break bread with the people at the shelter and build community, get to know them, have true solidarity and community. And from that, over time, a few things will happen. Our ideas about 
poverty and homelessness will shift. Um, what causes it? What are the pathways into it? What are the obstacles out of it? And also, we can start to really think critically about what it takes to overcome it. But this is a process, and it requires first proximity with the people who are struggling in it. Um, so we did that, and it was incredible. We started to form partnerships with many of the local elementary schools. And so very quickly, our meal needs were provided by local families. And so every night, uh, there would be a family at the shelter serving a meal um, with many children. And just to um, give you a little context, uh, when, when I, my children, who are now uh, 11 and almost 13, when they were babies, this was before, sh- the, you know, I opened the shelter, I wanted to, I wanted to raise them with the, I, I was raised Jewish and my, um, there's a, there's a Hebrew phrase called tikkun olam, which stands for repair the world and, um, kind of this idea of like giving back. And I wanted to raise them in that spirit. So I, uh, when they were babies, I wanted to take them to a homeless shelter and like serve a meal. And so I called a few shelters and said, I'd like to come when is best. And I want to come with my babies and I would wear them in the baby carrier. And everyone I spoke to said, we can't, you can't bring children. It's a liability. They could get sick. Something could get ha- happen. Right, right. Wow. So, um, so really, our shelter was one of the first to say, "No, we're going to let All children in. All are welcome." Mm-hmm. And so, what happened is because we were one of the only ones that allows that regularly every night. Uh, all the families in the region who wanted that experience for their children started to come specifically to us. We became known as that place where uh, where children were wanted, and not only wanted, but it was encouraged. And right. you, at this at this long dining room table during dinner, you would see people playing chess together and people, you know, having deep intellectual conversation. And you would see, you know, there was one boy who was in class with my son, and he. Um, he, he, I think he was on the um, autistic spectrum, and he was uh, hesitant to, to talk to anyone, really. Uh, he, I had never heard anything out of him, even though I tried to engage him for years knowing him. And, um, and, you know, it was just kind of known that this was a boy who didn't talk to anybody. And he came to the shelter with his family and his siblings, and he brought his Pokemon book, as he usually did, because he didn't interact with people. He would just read his book. And, and there was another man at the shelter who also never spoke to anyone and also potentially was on the spectrum. And just incidentally, the man and the boy ended up sitting next to each other, and I was sitting across from them. And somehow they ended up engaging with each other over the Pokemon book. And they built this friendship, and the boy would come back regularly. And the two, it was like they, they spoke their own little language to each other. That's it, beautiful. It was amazing. That's really a beautiful I um I got to see some really incredible relationships built and it was incredibly nourishing for me. I have to say before I opened the shelter I didn't know what to expect. I wasn't raised doing going to soup kitchens. So I was probably as ignorant as my students in the beginning. And I think like my students I probably had some of this white savior complex vibe going on where I thought, you know, we're going to do something good and it'll make us feel good. And like all my students, I also came away with that uh, the gifts I received were far greater than any I thought I would give, right? So I ended up learning so much from the people who came into the shelter, and I was so enriched. And now I feel like looking back on it, the fact that I ever thought, like my, just, you know, when I got into it, my ideas were so different. And I love that, that I was challenged too. 
And I've changed so much as a result of the, of this experience. That's great. That's great. Thanks. So that's a beautiful, um, a beautiful foundation and context. And thank you for for threading all of those themes together because it's the the personal, the policy, the history, the legacy. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love thank it. You. So tell me how the tiny home idea kind of emerged from what you were seeing in the shelter mm-hmm. and how you kind of wanted to replicate this community vibe, but in a more long-term context. Yes. Okay. So it, there, there's a few different ways that this came about. Um, one is throughout the years, um, we recognized that there was a major gap in the services that no shelters would take people with their pets. And, um, and so there's about 25% of people who are homeless have pets. Um, so, and if you think about it, uh, and I will talk about this a little bit more in depth in a minute, but, um, evictions are on the rise and homelessness uh, is on the rise as housing prices increase. And so, uh, so many of us have pets with us. And so when we become evicted, we become evicted with our pets. And then um, what happens is if, if you need, if a human needs to seek a shelter, maybe it's freezing cold in the dead of winter, um, you can't bring your pet with you. And so you would take your dog maybe to act Philadelphia, which is the Philadelphia animal shelter mm-hmm. or another animal rescue But um, there's an extremely high rate of animal euthanasia. And so people who were dropping their dogs off, and that's because the the shelters are underfunded also in actual capacity. So you would go to drop your dog off and and they would give you a letter saying that you are, you know, when you surrender your pet, you're not getting your pet back. And it's likely the pet might, might die. Now, given that calculation, people would refuse to go inside, you, you know, would, would refuse to give their pet up and would have nowhere to go, but would go back on the streets with their pets. And I saw this over and over again. When people would come to us, we were in church basements and the church wouldn't allow pets. And so I would try to find some place for the person to go with a pet and couldn't find any place. And I said, this is a gap. And in essence, I wanted our shelter to be truly low barrier, um, meaning, you know, just more accessible. And the more hoops and challenges we make for people to come in, the harder it will be to get people off the streets. So um, I said, you know, we have to be truly low barrier so we can help more people. Uh, What's interesting is that for years before I came up with the idea of we need to take in people and their pets, which was about two years ago, um, we were just housing humans. And it was a struggle to raise money. And then when I said, we're going to take people and their pets, suddenly all the doors opened. And what I learned was that uh, many people care more about pets than they do humans. And so so when they heard, oh, you're going to take puppies? Like that became the thing. And I didn't realize that. you know, but I think, and I think that there's a lot of people in the animal, the animal community is strong and vocal and have been incredibly supportive of me. Um, and we want to save animals and we want to save humans together. I think some people might want to help this project because they think they're saving the pets, but it, when they, and that's fine, that's great. That's a noble, um, uh, initiative. But I think maybe when they go in to save the pet, they'll fall in love with Tyrone in the process. And, you know, maybe they'll be changed also. Right, right. So um, basically, uh, I didn't uh, I, I didn't understand. I didn't really know what was happening. I, I, what I knew is in order to take in people and the pets, we had to have our own space. So we started looking for our own buildings. 
we found a building that we fell in love with um, it, and it had enough capacity for about 100 people to be housed with their pets in a, in a single building and mm-hmm. we linked them to services and ha- helped them get housing afterwards. Um, we were hit with a lot of nimbyism, not in my backyard, from, from neighbors in that community who didn't want a shelter. And so we had um, uh, we had an investment. We had Alan Dom was going to purchase the building for us, and we had a lot of pushback from the neighbors. And so eventually that contract fell through, and we had to kind of start again at square one because we knew we needed to be somewhere where the community wanted us. Right, right. And for our audience, um, Alan Dom is a, a city councilman here in Philadelphia and also a real estate uh, developer. That's correct. So, um, so basically, I was uh, crying for a while when this fell through because I was really hopeful about it and put a lot of time and energy into this building. But I think, you know, we're more than a building. It's an initiative, and it's, it's got a lot of momentum and a lot of, you know, and I, I, nothing is ever truly lost. So I, I cried in bed for a while. My friend Lucy Noland, who also helps me on the project, she's like kind of my partner on the project, and she... Um, She's a huge advocate for animals. She was also the lead anchor of Fox 29 up until recently, but she's, um, she's a force. And she kept calling me and saying, it's going to be okay. We're meant for something bigger and better. And so at the same time, around that time, I saw a video online um, from uh, about tiny homes for people who were homeless out in Eugene, Oregon. And I, it looked so compelling. And I said, I got to go there. So I booked a flight, and I was out there two weeks later. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I went I went out there to see it, because I got to see what it looks like. I got to feel it. And it was incredible. And I was so inspired. And when I started putting out there into the universe and the social media world that I thought maybe tiny homes was a good idea, you know, everyone wanted in. And so then I got a lot of, like, the environmentalists or the people who were just oh, really interested right. in, like, living small and... And, you know, this is so trendy and, you know, so, so we got even more um, excitement. So uh, uh, then we got to work building houses. Now, at the same time, though, this initiative, so it starts to morph from we're going to be in a building of our own for people and their pets to we're going we're gonna to build housing. And the truth is that um, – in, in, in reality, that's a better mission anyway. As you mentioned in the very beginning, you said, like, you know, the shelter is a Band-Aid. And it really is. There's a need for it, I believe. Uh, but the, what happened is I mentioned to you that in 2008, this shift started from mm-hmm. funding shelter to funding housing. What that looks like now in 2009 is, a, is different than what it looked like in 2008 because... In 2019. That's correct. So, what, yeah, I'm sorry. So, what it looks like now that, uh, is different than what it looked like in 2008 because housing prices have skyrocketed, but the amount of money that the government uses has not to to fund this this, this housing initiative has not. So, what that means is, let's just say, and I'm making this number up, and it's not an accurate number, but let's say the government has a million dollars set aside for this housing voucher initiative to get people into housing. Mm-hmm. That number doesn't change. Sometimes it actually drops a little bit. However, housing prices continue to rise. Mm -hmm. So I think from 2000, 
2015 to 2017 in a 17-month period in between there, um, housing prices went up by 40% in Philadelphia. And that's something we're seeing throughout the world in major cities. Right. Um, And we have a mass migration of people starting really in 2011 from the suburbs into the cities. I think about 70% of the world's population now lives in the city. It started to uh, become a majority in 2011, and it's only going right. to mm-hmm. rise. So nice. mm-hmm. um, so there's a demand for housing uh, in the city. Housing is being built, but it's extremely expensive. And what happens is that people who've lived in the city forever and work in the city suddenly become priced out of the marketplace. They can't in- afford the rise in their rents, especially right. because rents are rising, ha- mortgages are rising, housing costs are rising, wages are not. Yep. Exactly. So they're exactly. stagnant. Yeah. And so so um, what we see every day is people who cannot afford to live in their houses anymore. Now, homelessness is complicated. There's many pathways into it. Housing prices are one, certainly not the only one. Of course, we also see in Philadelphia um, a rise in the, um, in the drug epidemic, in the opioid epidemic. Um, and so uh, that's also leading to... Uh, unprecedented levels of homelessness. Um, And we are not equipped to manage that. So if somebody is in active addiction, what we try to do is connect them to the resources in Philadelphia that can help them and then -hmm. then maybe support those resources. Right, right, right. Um, But in any event, so uh, if the government is not funding, giving any more funding for housing vouchers, but the housing is going up, fewer people can get those vouchers. And now if you need a housing voucher, um, there's a wait list that is decades long. So in addition to that, so we need to increase the inventory of affordable housing in Philadelphia. Um, But then also not only is it decades long, but the people who get the vouchers are usually considered, they have to be the most vulnerable. So the first people are either they're in active addiction, chronically homeless, severe disabilities, or um, or in family units, whole family units, um, many people who are homeless don't fit those criteria, or they have to fake it, okay. as I've seen. Um, and so it's uh, it's very it's, difficult. It's very to, complicated. It's complicated. It's hard to get on yeah. the list. Then even if you get a voucher, a lot of landlords don't accept those vouchers. They don't want to take right, Section right. 8 housing. Right. Um, so, and it's very hard to find it. Uh, and so what happens in Philadelphia... Affordable housing is considered housing in which the person is paying no more than 30% of their income. Um, it, it is no longer affordable if it's more than 30% of your of their mm-hmm. income. But what's happening in Philadelphia is that most people who are in poverty are paying well over 50%, right, sometimes right. 80%. Right. Yeah, there's something interesting. I saw uh, last year, Philadelphia Magazine uh, published a story about a survey that indicated Philadelphia housing is affordable compared to other cities, mm-hmm. just not for the average Philadelphian. Mm-hmm. And the survey compared household income to living costs. And in Philadelphia, the average homeowner ends the month with uh, $719 in the hole, in debt. Mm-hmm. And if you're a renter, it's even worse. The average renter in Philadelphia is generally $1,300 in the hole each month. That's right. I've seen so that. It's, it's, I've seen that, and not only have I seen that, but I've been that. I've been there. Um, also, so what's happening is that there's another thing going on, um, is that the housing stock is being concentrated more and more in the hands of a few. So most of the housing stock in Philadelphia is owned by a few large corporations. 
and evictions are becoming automated and fast and so otherwise like people tenants have rights and there's mm-hmm. eviction lawyers there's right. people who can right. help them stay in their house or in their home and if you're trying to evict your tenant you, there's you have to go to court it can be complicated so a little like you know mom and pop you know someone who owns a few rental properties they're going to have a harder time you know getting somebody out who they need to evict um, but that's not the general case of who owns these units in Philadelphia. Most of the units are owned by these major corporations, right, and then right. what, and then they're managed by major management firms that are actually sometimes national or even global management firms. So the tenants just become a number, and then um, evictions are also automated and very fast and cheap. And so it becomes inex- when you uh, when you own so many rental properties like that, it becomes actually. Uh, less expensive the more evictions you do. Okay. okay. So so evictions in that scenario become um, almost easy and prized. Right. Right. Um, and so again, like I've t- when I t- tell people who own property um, and have tenants, like you know, evictions are on the rise. I've heard from people who say like that's not true because. And they think of themselves. I own a few properties, and if I wanted to evict someone, it would be nearly impossible. Not impossible, but it would be difficult and stressful, so I wouldn't do that. And also, I know my tenant. And what you know, Dave, who, who says this to me, doesn't realize is that Dave is the minority. Most people mm. don't have property like that, So, okay. and I see it all the time. Right, right. So, so the tiny homes are a way of kind of you know, providing a new injection of yes. life and solution to kind of um, undercut. That's right. What's happening? That's right. So for the tiny homes um, or, or small homes, mm-hmm. um, what we're going to be doing is building these homes at a community center on site. Because the other thing that um, Housing First didn't do well, in my opinion, uh, this policy shift to providing housing vouchers is providing the services people needed to stay in their homes. Um, sometimes these services were provided because the Housing First initiative, when the money going redirected from shelter to housing, also was supposed to be like uh, wraparound services for people to keep them in their homes, but only for a period of about six months. And, and, and it didn't do well. So um, for us, the ha- building of the houses is simultaneous with the building of a community center. And the community center will have the services that we're offering from soup to nuts, job training, resume building, healthcare, you know, anything that people need to um, to be, you know, not just sustained in their housing, but also just fully thriving humans. Uh, you know, we're thinking holistically about this. So we'll even have art workshops and book club and, and all the things that people mm-hmm. want. Um, and also the shared meals. So this is going to be very community oriented. Um, and those services will be for life. Um, and then what happens is that the clients come to us and we get them into the house. And once we get them into the house, we then figure out how they can stay in the house. So, um, the first house, for example, was funded by another amazing organization called Rescue Rebuild that works on building properties and homes, um, really to promote, um, to, to help pets mm-hmm. and people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but they gave us a grant uh, to pay for the first house. And so that first house is paid for in full. 
So in essence, when the person comes through, and so that's what we're looking at, a model in which the housing is paid for, uh, paid already by sponsorships and grants. And then the people will come in. And usually people have income, even if they're not working. If they don't, we try to get them linked to income um, and then figure out how they can pay 30% of that, not more, potentially less, on everything it ne- that the house needs for upkeep, including like u- um, utilities. You know, not more than 30% of that, mm-hmm, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and we will work with them to, to make sure that that, that works. Um, so the, so, and we've, in, in this process, I have, it's not just Eugene, Oregon that I visited. I started going throughout the world, visiting communities like this and borrowing best practices. So there's another community similar called Social Bite in Edinburgh, Scotland, that I've been to twice this wow. year. Um, they opened it, not this July, but the July prior. And I was there in October a year ago. Um, and then, uh, which, so they'd only been open for a few months. And then I went back in May to say like, okay, their winter is similar to ours. And so, um, you made it through the year. It was your first year. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. problems did you encounter that you didn't realize you would? How did you problem solve? So that's the researcher and the traveler in me. Right, right. Um, and then it helps us with our process. So, uh, Mark Squilla, is fabulous. He's ex- another councilman, mm-hmm. right? He's uh, he's city council for District One, which is actually with the district where I live. Um, and and where's that? Is that uh, Bella Vista? Or- yeah. So okay. I live in I live in Queen Village, oh, right Queen next Village. to Bella okay. Vista, and um, he covers that. I think all of South Philly and the River Wards. So um, the the land that we have, we're looking to do this throughout the whole city to scale up, um, and so. Oh, the f- he's been amazing. So he, from day one, he said, I want you in my district. In fact, the first building I mentioned to you that we had under contract wasn't in his district, but he would come to the tours there and he kept saying like, I got to figure out how to get you in my district. So when that building fell through, he's like, all right, now we're going to look. So we looked at land from the land bank, um, which is land that's city property. And, um, and the land bank was able to show us about 40 parcels of land in the Port Richmond section. Um, And this is the first land we're going for. Um, There was a heavy vetting process with the land bank for us to get that land. Um, There was an application process and and it it, it took like about a year. Yeah. Kudos to you for that. Thank you. It's been, yeah. I mean, I've heard many complaints about the Philadelphia land bank. So the fact that you made it through is fantastic. Yeah. And the people who worked with us at the land bank were wonderful. There's definitely some like glitches in the system, which we saw, but um, they're trying very hard to work it out. Um, and we, we really, so people like who know about the land bank, when we say we got land from the land bank, they recognize that was a major process. And the fact that we were successful has opened more doors for us. Um, but in essence, um, what we're doing is increasing in affordable housing. Um, you mentioned the part of the project about like, uh, coming in with panels or prefabricated. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So the other thing that's important to mention is that, um, to build new construction for, for affordable housing is actually not affordable in general. So new construction costs approximately three to $400,000 for a new affordable housing unit to be built. 
Um, the reason for that, actually, uh, like just a tiny bit of history, this started around the New Deal era with um, FDR. So um, when FDR was trying to get people back to work, um, the, there was an oh, agreement the, that like they were building new housing units. And tied to the unions. Mm-hmm. Right. And the prevailing wage was very high. And that has never changed. So what that means is in order to build new building for affordable housing, um, the rules that haven't changed really since the New Deal um, make it unaffordable very quickly so you have to pay prevailing wage right and soon you're priced out right right? and that's why we're seeing a lot of the new construction going for the luxury condo market luxury rentals so you've been able to navigate that and break through that talk to us about the uh, project the or how do you pronounce it? Orleans? Orleans Street. Or- Orleans mm-hmm. Street in Kensington, right? No, it's, it's in, in Port Richmond. It's in Port Richmond. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, so you have Councilman Squilla mm-hmm. and Alan Dome. Mm-hmm. He... He's still providing us with um, investments, resources, and, and credit, which okay. helps us go, go... It goes a long way. So he's really helpful to but us. But you have... Uh, tell us more about that project in terms mm-hmm. of how big the parcel of land mm-hmm. is. You did have a groundbreaking, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, this is, it's a little bit confusing, but it's important to note that that project, it's the it's first phase of what we're doing, but it's not going to be the really the tiny houses. Okay. The reason for that, and we are doing tiny houses, it's just not on that land. So let's define what a tiny house is it's in terms of... really good okay. question. And the answer is there's no definition, and it's different for every person. Okay. So you met, like, there's a... You you noticed that uh, we started rebranding from tiny house to cozy cottage, and the reason for that is because when some when some people heard tiny house, they thought sheds, um, they thought um, these like movable wood units, wooden yeah. tents, um, no electricity, no water. We are going to be on solid foundation, not movable. Um, you know, real houses with plumbing and and electricity that are just very small. But even in terms of what's very small is, you know, in Philadelphia, these average row homes are like 800 square feet, which is pretty tiny. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with my two kids for three years, and that was 600 square feet. That's small, especially when your kids are going through puberty. I would call that a tiny house. <laughs> so um, it was it was a, it was small, you know, but, and also, um, there's the other thing too, the tiny house trend, a lot of it is very popular because of our concern with climate change. However, in Philadelphia, there's tiny, that's not energy efficient. So the apartment I was living in was very old and was incredibly energy inefficient. And my, it cost a ton of money to heat, you know, for heat and electricity because mm-hmm. everything was escaping through the house because there was no insulation. So the so when I say this, this is such a new concept that there aren't real definitions, and so this is why like wording is important because it, it because people have all these different ideas of what it means because there's not an one definition. Um, so and also the other thing that's kind of complicated is because it hasn't been done in Philadelphia before there does there doesn't exist the zoning infrastructure you know the policy d- isn't there which is both good and bad it's it's it the way the reason it's good is because it, you potentially can create something new right and the lucky thing for us is we have incredible support from the commissioner of LNI David Perry oh that's huge yeah so um so we can, we can potentially create new policy where there wasn't 
wasn't policy before around this. So this is exciting. Um, so, so what we're doing right now though on our lean street, the reason why it's not the really tiny, it's small, but it's not as small as we can go is because it's infill. Okay. So, um, and that we're doing infill, which is basically, we have all these plots, about 40 plots of land, but usually they're plots situated in between two existing, existing structures, houses. And so, and the reason we're doing that first is just because that was the first land available. And our top priority is to increase the inventory of affordable housing. It wasn't to build tiny. Tiny is what we'd like to do, but if we don't have the land to do it, we're going to build what we can. But we still are pursuing other land parcels. We're looking for land between an acre and an acre and a half to build as small as we want. But for right now, first phase infill, which is certainly not our last phase, is that um, we are doing this infill project. So what's happening is that there are houses that had been maybe demolished on the land, but the, the parcels are empty. And so um, we are going excavating because there's like rubble, building foundations. So here's the thing that ties into what I said about most affordable housing is not affordable. And this is what connects to the panelized. So we are working with, we're going with SIPs, what's called SIPs panels, which are heavily insulated. They're like refrigerator doors, heavily insulated panels that are, that are produced in like a warehouse, a factory Mm -hmm. offsite. And then they're shipped to us. On site, we're building the um, the foundation, the mm-hmm. slabs, with union labor, and we're working with the trades um, to pr- to give us um, to pr- to donate supplies and labor, keeping our costs down. And then um, and then we don't have to pay prevailing wage for you don't have to provide that on panels or prefabricated um, walls because they're produced at a factory. So you only do that for the labor that's produced, okay. you know, where, what that's done there on site, um, and in the city, but if it's produced elsewhere and it ships. So, yeah, so this is how we're kind of getting around. Um, and, and I want to be clear, I'm very pro union. Um, and I believe that you need to pay labor. Well, the problem for us is that with the rules that exist now and since since the new deal um it becomes unaffordable mm-hmm. to build affordable and so then you see homelessness and, right. and lack of affordable housing right does that make all make sense oh yes it does it's okay. a vicious a vicious cycle so then what we're doing um and again this so this is really big is that i mentioned to you we had we we had this setback in the first uh, building because we hit nimbyism, not in my backyard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at that point, I identified nimbyism as our biggest challenge. And so uh, when we saw these unit these these plots in in the Port Richmond section, with that you know knowledge, and also with my background in terms of you know being anti white savior complex and not wanting believing just it's good policy to not go in and say, this is what we're doing here. Thank God for us. You know? Right, right. Um, so what I started doing is going with my, you know, with my crew every day and going door to door and talking, talking to the to neighbors the yeah. and having sit downs with them. And I, we hosted um, an ice cream social on the hottest day of the summer and we would have neighborhood cleanups and we would say, 
what do you want for your neighborhood? And um, what we noticed, one thing that I thought was interesting, a lot of people who don't know each other, there's a fear of crime. And so many people express to me, we don't come outside of our house because we're afraid of, you know, that there'll be people addicted and or, you know, something will happen. And so they go to work or school and then they come home and, you know, they don't go outside. And I, I want to disrupt that. I want to change that. I want the neighbors to know each other. Um, and there's a, there's a model, uh, in, in East Kensington called, um, Los Parsales. Um, and in the 1980s, the neighbors wanted to drive down crime and they created kind of this community hub where people all came together to eat together and drink together. There was art installations and, and it drew people together in building it and sustaining it. And because everyone got to know each other, it also helped to bring down crime there. And it's, right, it's there right. now and it's beautiful. But when I went and I said to the neighbors, like, what do you want? They said things like, we'd like gardens and we want murals on our walls and we want um, more lighting. There were a few neighbors who said... This land next to us is not our land, but there are there was a trailer that somebody dumped here years ago, and now people who are addicted go in there and they do drugs in there, and we can't get this trailer off our land. We don't have the resources to do that, but we do. So listening to them, that this is something that they want. They want these like abandoned cars and trailers that have been left in their neighborhood off. So we help them take get that off, get the lighting in. The gardens with um, Britt Carpenter is an amazing community advocate in Philadelphia, and he has raised money for what's called community healing gardens. And he's partnering with us to build gardens throughout the community with our with the people who live there. It's going to be all hands on deck. So the building and the maintaining of all of this is going to be a group effort with the clients, with our volunteers, with the neighbors, Um, and even this idea of infill. It wasn't my first choice, but usually it's the best choice, even if it's not the first. I even think that that's better than having a community where all the houses are the same group of people experiencing the same circumstance. I think the fact that there is this kind of... Um, you know, diversity in that the houses are, are, you know, some houses have been there for a long time and the cl- and the people who live there have lived there for a long time. Some, you know, I think that this is maybe not a bad idea. Right. right. Um, so what's it going to cost for the, for the infill of properties? So it's a really good question. It's, we're, we're estimating right now somewhere in the ballpark of 75 to $100,000, which is significantly more affordable than what the, it, it, the general new construction mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Um, and those houses won't be that big. So when I say like they're not the tiny houses, um, but they're, they were, because they're infill, they're, they're fitting along the line of those other row houses. So, so they can be approximately 800, 900 square feet. So which is still small, but not as small as we can go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and at highly energy efficient. So with the SIPS panels, it cuts down on um, heat, uh, heating costs, electric costs um, by about 50%. So that's important if you're building for affordable housing, because you can't just think about like what it costs to build, but also what it costs to, to um, you know, for the utilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so with the specific types of panels that we're looking at, um, this is going to have long-term cost effectiveness when you think about like, and also good for the environment, but certainly um, driving down the cost of utilities. Definitely, definitely. So where do things stand right now? I know it's still early days, mm-hmm. but ultimately what's the timeline? And with the existing uh, parcel of land that you currently have, how many um, uh, cozy cottages 
can be built? So about 40 right now. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah, but that's just first phase, right? So we're looking to do this throughout the city. And, and go, you know, the more we do it, the easier it gets. This is kind of like the first one was the heaviest lift because we didn't know what we were doing. I've had to get a PhD in real estate and um, learn everything about like construction and, and, you know, zoning and it's a whole world that yeah. was a foreign language to me, but I've had to dig deep. Right now, we're lucky to have an incredible project manager named Kirstie Bercali, who is on our side and helping us and has a lot of experience with project management. In terms of the timeline, um, we're hoping to have this build out within the, you know, bef- within the year. Um, you know, I want to over... Uh, under-promise and over-deliver. So I'm trying not to, you know like get hopes too up, you know, too high because anything can happen. Right. Right. Um, but we have a tremendous support system. We have help from uh, many different agencies, corporations, nonprofits, um, social, so, social service providers throughout the city. And, and very importantly, um, city council members like Mark Squilla, who's by our side and Alan Dom. So, um, and like I mentioned, David Perry, the head of LNI has been fabulous. Um, and uh, Ann Fadulin, and also we're working with Rich, Rich Laser, who is the um, deputy mayor of, of labor, and so he's helping us coordinate deals with with the trades to um, to really help w- keep Incredible. our costs down. Incredible. So Stephanie, for for people who want to connect with you, I mean, we could I could definitely talk to you for another hour, but we're kind of um, heading into the end of the show now. Um, for people who want to connect with you, where can they find you? How can sure. they get more information and if they want to support what you're doing? Sure. There's there's a few different ways they can do that. They can, um, we're on social media. Um, so Facebook slash 3HUP, which is S-R-E-H-U-P. Um, or they can just find my personal Facebook page because I post a lot about it, which is Stephanie Senna. Um, they can go to our website where we have blogs and updates, which is 3HUP.org. Um, or they can, um, they can email me, which is fine. Um, and my email, which you can put on the, um, I'll on put in the show notes. Sure. It's, in- and it, but it, easily it's my name, Stephanie.senna at villanova.edu. Okay, so. great. Fabulous. Well, Stephanie, I congratulate you because Thank I mean, you. your ability to pivot and take action is huge because there's so many people that say, I want to do good. I want to change the world. And it's like, let me just send out a tweet. Yeah. You know, you know <laughs> it's, it's like you're getting on planes. Thank you. But it's, it, <laughs> yes, I am. But it's changed me. You know, it's been fulfilling for me. It's a challenge. Um, and you know what? Uh, also, the people who in my world have such incredible energy. So, so my world is filled with either people who want to give back. They want to do good. They don't know how to. And they would look to me to help them channel that energy. Uh, you're a leader. Yeah. Or yeah. other people who are struggling and have a tremendous gifts to offer and I try to help them mm-hmm. like fulfill those dreams and wishes and, and helps but I learned so much from them and so my world is a bubble in terms of the fact that it's a bubble of of love hope and generosity um, and I breathe it in and I and I and I exhale it too so um, it's, well, it's great it's incredible and I'd love to have anyone on the team so if it's anyone's great. listening and want to be wants to be involved there's room for them too yeah I mean you're doing very important work and I hope more people get inspired and motivated by your example because you. you really are leading, you're walking the walk and you know, you're leading by example. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you for having me on thank the you show. For we'll have to have you come back because I mean, there's it. so much more that we could talk about. And this has been an education for me because all this um, historical uh, perspective and mm-hmm. the policy, I kind of like had a vague notion of it, but you really kind of brought it all together. And I, I thank you. I thank you so much. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, my pleasure. 
So folks, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can check out other episodes of the show by subscribing to the podcast. You can find the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.